Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flip Gorilla podcast. This is Joe with Maven Loans, and I wanted to, uh, we have a, a special guest on here, Robert Fergozo. He's been a, uh, he's been an investor for many, many years in the Los Angeles, Southern California area. He actually uh, was a co-founder of a very large hard money company, um, fixed and flipped many, many houses. He's actually fixing and flipping through this whole market that we're in now. And uh, he has quite a bit of properties that he's uh, dealing with. And I wanted to have him on the show just to kind of discuss what, uh, what he sees in the market and what this new uh, rate hike did. And uh, so anyway, with no further ado, this is uh, Robert Fergozo. What's up, Robert? Hey, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No, it's good to have you on. It's good to have you on. So I just thought we'd kind of chat a little bit about, you know, what, because uh, I know that you're fixing a lot of properties. You've been you've consistently fixed and flipped throughout this whole last you know, uh, market. And uh, there's been some changes in the last, you know, 30, 45 days with interest rates hiking and people stop lending and, and uh, the pricing. Uh, the NMLS has been kind of, I don't know, let's just say it hasn't been solid. And so I just kind of wanted to see where you're at, what, what you're up to right now. Well, you know, I mean, I'm still fixing and flipping. We just uh, adapted the way that we're doing uh, um that we're doing the uh, the valuations a little bit, you know. We've uh, we've changed some things. I think for the most part, from our from well, my standpoint is uh, the demographics are really going to lead the market, and the people that are fearful of this being another two thousand eight, I think, are just really incorrect and in selling fear for whatever purposes, whether it be media clicks or seminars or things along those lines. I think if you understand all of the dynamics as a whole then it makes a lot more sense. But if you take, you know, certain parts of it certainly look, you know, or could look similar, you know, but, uh, but, but, but things are very, very different. And I think that's why you're seeing when interest rates went up and the Fed raised rates, that mortgage rates actually dropped and you saw the 10 year um, actually drop. Uh, last I checked, I don't know what it opened up today, but it, it, yesterday was at 2.58. Yeah. And, uh, and that caused rates to really drop. So, you know, we had a special program with some of our houses that uh, we were marketing at 4.25% uh, interest rate instead of someone having to pay the five, you know, 0.25 or whatever the, the rate was at, we, uh, we had bought the rate down for them. And uh, now that 4.25 is at par. And so we could actually get them a 3.95 on a 30 year jumbo fixed loan. Right. So, you know, there, there, there's things have gotten better. Uh, I did see the market saw a few weeks ago. So if you look at, uh, let's say three weeks ago, three, three weekends ago, anyhow, uh, you know, after they'd raised the rates that the market really stalled that we saw the open houses and the buyers, generally speaking, when a rehab property goes on the market, you know, you tend to get a lot of offers. We had a, a few that hit that weekend and I think it was 4th of July weekend. Uh, not only because it was 4th of July weekend, it was slow, but it was also slow just because of, of the fears of the market. And then the following weekend after the 4th of July weekend uh, was also slow, uh, you know, had some properties that hit the market and really didn't get any offers that first week or the second week. Uh, but, you know, one of the things about being an experienced investor is that you don't panic immediately, right? You just kind of watch and see what's happening where, as I saw people start to, you know, kind of panic a little bit, you know, you reassess, you look at the marketplace, you see where you're at, you know, you drive the comps, you do all the old school, school stuff and see what's different, what the feel is so that the buyers, and I thought we were priced right, so we didn't drop our price. Um, I did see some other people drop their price and I thought they were priced high to begin with. Yeah. And uh, and then they went pending. 
you know, we're starting to get action on ours now. And, you know, and that's kind of, I think where the market's at. I think that here's the way my example, my analogy is this. We were going 120 miles an hour, right? Super unhealthy, unsafe marketplace. And then we slowed down to like 85 because our ways said, hey, there's a cop up ahead, right? right? And and 85 seems like, wow, we're going really slow. But guess what? We're still fucking going 85 miles an hour. And you'll right. still get a ticket at 85 miles an hour. It's still yeah, yeah. unhealthy. It, it's still actually kind of unhealthy, right? We're still at two point something months inventory. We should be at three to four months at least. And, and that would be a more balanced marketplace. But what I am doing is I'm ignoring all of the comparable sales from April and May because I know that on some of the things that we've got done that are now hitting the market, we won't be able to replicate those comps. And so instead of like, usually when I buy in October, um, I ignore like June and July comps. And because you won't be able to replicate that when you sell that, when you flip that house in you know Christmas time or January. And, you know, and so because of that, uh, we just move that back a little bit to, you know, basically uh, April and May and even part of June, some of those comps, you know, they just won't be able to be replicated. So from an appraisal standpoint, you've really got very little appraisal issues because the comps are higher than what your viewpoint is. But from a bubble standpoint, for all the people think that, hey, this is 2008 again, you know, our bubble really was only created between December and probably uh, uh, May. Yeah, well, let me ask yeah. you. So, so there's an argument out there that says something to the effect of, uh, you know, you have a 30-day inventory or 60 or whatever you said the inventory was, um, but too, do you have much. the same amount of borrowers right now with the rate hike, right? It might've lowered the amount of people that could purchase these properties. So you might have the inventory, but do we still now have the same amount of borrowers that are qualified to purchase these properties? And, and is there enough data out there to show, you know, whether we have right. these borrowers? Yeah, so um, I would say that, uh, yeah, so the short answer is you have a two month inventory, slightly over two month inventory um, because you have those bar borrowers out there, you have those buyers. And while it's building, you have less buyers now than you did before because you lost all of your, kind of your median buyers that were on the cusp of qualifying you lost them, for, keep in mind, you don't lose them, but you lose them for the time being because they're not out of the marketplace. It doesn't mean that they don't no longer qualify for that house. They no longer qualify for that house that they can no longer afford, but they can afford a house that they step down into a slightly either smaller or lower price point. And so, and those buyers that you say that, let's say, hey, they can't afford that house. It's the same thing, right? It's a trickle down effect. So no longer can you afford maybe the 2,500 square foot house, but you sure as shit can probably afford the 2,100 square foot house. And so, you know, that mindset, when you don't look at the big picture, you just say, oh my gosh, I can't qualify for this house that you probably weren't going to get anyway right. because of the 30 offers, right? You're going to be most likely, you're, you're a favorite to be one of the 29 that got their offer rejected or it was too low or whatever. Now you're in a marketplace where you can see that and, and keep in mind, so interest rates went up. I would say prices probably came down a little bit, you know, um, you know, because you can't replicate those same comps. But so far as in order to have the market crash, if that's the theory, right? Because you don't have enough buyers and inventory is building. You also need to have distressed sellers. And, you know, over 70% of America has basically 70% or better equity in their homes with most of them having it free and clear. 
And so where is this distressed seller going to come from? In yeah, fact, the numbers, I think, yeah, I think the, num the, the numbers actually higher. It's like 78% or something like that. So, you know, we have so much nested equity in this marketplace and our default rate now is one point. What is, I think I checked this morning. It was one point like two, eight percent or something like that. All right. So it's not coming from defaults. It's not coming from upside down mortgages where, you know, sellers that don't get their price right now, they're just sitting and waiting. It's like, okay, well, we, that's what we want. You're getting some price reductions in the market. And normally what I'm seeing is this, is that, you know, what was happening, this is the unhealthy part of the market that was in, in, you know, February, you know, uh, March, April, May was that the rush was to be the next highest comp. And it wasn't just you beating that next comp by, five percent by well, not even five percent by by like five thousand dollars or ten thousand you're beating that house by like twenty thousand thirty thousand and everyone got caught up in that frenzy it was unbelievable you know we we had homes that we priced on the higher side of what we thought we were going to get and the offers came in you know two three hundred thousand dollars higher Whoa. you know you know and it's just that's it was crazy. that's a good day yeah I helped a homeowner flip a house where we, we, uh, we kind of just fixed up their house and they wanted to try to maximize it. And, you know, the top point, this is the homeowner who did, you know, who, who was going to list it. Uh, and they said, I, I don't see getting more than one seven, five for it. And I said, all right, let's list it at one six, nine, five and see, you know, get a little bit more action. First weekend out, we had almost 200 people through the open, actually slightly over 200 people through the open house. Um, so much so they had a Nest camera, right? And the homeowner wasn't like, you know, my deal with them was when I fix up their house so they can flip it was you got to move out if we're doing all this work to it and so we can get it done quickly and you're going to max out the value. Well, let me just stop you real quick because there might sure. be some people that might be interested in that. So what you're doing is you're you're partnering with the homeowner, right? And saying, look, you you move out, I'll fix and flip it. And then whatever agreement you guys make, you take that property, you market it, you do your, your magic on it, and then you put it on the market and you guys have some arrangement. Is that how it's going? Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. So in, in, in not all cases, they have to move out. In this case, uh, they did because they had pets and so forth. And um, I was explaining to him one of the reasons why investors get so much money for their homes isn't always just that it's been fixed up, but it's because it's readily available to, sh to show. Sometimes when agents, you know, let's, let's, let's cater off of agents that are lazy. And if a lazy agent has that buyer, they're driving around, they didn't make the phone calls to set an appointment to show your house and you have pets and you got to clean up and get it ready. And they're already in the car with them. You're going to miss out on that showing. That might be the buyer that wants to pay the most. Sure. And so from a selling standpoint, if you really want to capitalize on the market, you need to make your property available for as many people as 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 can be in order to see that home because you never know who's going to fall in love with it and want that house so anyhow in this case um they moved out and uh uh there were so many people coming through the open house i see i, I see the homeowner walk in right which you, you never really want the homeowner at the open house and i'm like you couldn't stay away huh and she starts <laughs> laughing she starts laughing she's like i just kept getting alerts on my phone and she's like after like 60 or 70 responses she's like i had to just come see how crazy it was and i had two other agents with me at that open house and i told both of them i'm like i'm like we need to get outside like one of you go upstairs 
you go out in front and greet people as they're walking in. I'm going to go to the backyard because there's so many people in the house. It was becoming difficult to walk around, you know, and um, that's a successful showing. I like that. that. That is a great, well, we do other things to pre-market and the, you know, even now we get a lot of people through our open houses, but um, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, it sounds like we, we had so, like uh, alcohol and strippers at that, at that open house. <laughs> well, <laughs> not that much. It, it, not that much, but you know, it was it, it was definitely a success. We we ended up with uh, eight or nine offers that first week. I didn't set a date to try to get more because we already knew that, and the agents appreciated that that we weren't trying to collect thirty offers. Yeah. I've never been I've never been one to you know try and collect offers for the sake of you know bragging about hey we got so many offers. I'd rather you know generally speaking the first few offers that come in is one of those is going to be the best offer anyway. And in this case, same thing. It was true. Uh, the person that wrote the first offer actually ended up with the house. They went to both open houses, both on Saturday and Sunday, went back on Monday. Uh, we countered on everyone on Wednesday. And uh, Wednesday, when we sent them the counter, they were out there with their home inspector, with everybody else, and gave us a non-contingent offer that was, you know, uh, I think it was 300000 over asking. Let me ask you something. So this was pre- uh, rate hike, right? This was like what, a few months ago. No, 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 no. This was post post the first rate hike. Really? Oh, yeah. This was po- yeah. This was post the first rate hike. The second rate hike really did, did a, I think a little bit more damage, but it wasn't just the rate hike. It was also gas prices, you know. And so with gas prices, that's one of the things that is for consumers really affects consumer confidence, right? Because it, you start to have less money, and it's one of these things that is a necessity, but it really just it's it's not that it really makes a I mean, for some people, it makes a difference in in their cash flow, right? For most people, that extra fifty dollars or something doesn't really change something significantly, um, but it pisses them off, right? It's like, man, I am you know spending this much money to fill up my gas tank. When it went from seventy to you know ninety five or a hundred, no. you know and then the grocery that store, right? The grocery store then. Grocery stores crazy, about to get crazier, right? Beef and, and wheat prices going up. Um, but you know, here at the end of the day, you know, it all adds up. And then if if one day you're a little bit tighter than you were before, then that kind of upsets you because it's like, man, I had a nice life. And then you're upset at the cost, and that makes you lose a little bit of confidence. And so that's kind of what I'm seeing right now in the marketplace is that you're losing some of that consumer confidence, but here's the interesting thing, right? They're still spending. They're not happy about it, but they're still spending because the money's still there. And so, you know, and so when you look at the economic data, yes, consumer confidence, that's one factor. And that usually is the precursor for what's coming, right? But we've seen gas prices ease up a little bit and, I think when you look at, again, you go back, you look at the big picture, we still have two months worth of inventory. You still have buyers buying. And with this, we started this conversation with the rate hike and how's that affecting the market? Well, so far, the way it's affected it is it's made people feel a little bit more confident that the Fed's trying to take some actions to get inflation under control and mortgage rates actually went down, right? And so, you know, if you really understand economics, the Fed raising rates doesn't control inflation. Inflation's controlled by a variety of other factors. And, you know, food, oil, you know, uh, you know, durable, everything's been going up. And part of it is supply chain issues. And if you study past pandemics, you always get a supply chain issue. You always get 
you know, and it's a three-year cycle and we're in that three-year cycle right now where things are starting to normalize. And the last rate hike, I think what happened was it not the, not this last one that just happened, but the previous one, I think what it did is it was the midst of the gas prices being over $6 heading towards seven and, you know, people starting to lose confidence and holding back a little bit. And when they saw those rates go up, the banks also overcorrected because they weren't, they shouldn't have been initially as high as they were, but they were, and they were pricing in future rate hikes, right? That's why when this rate hike turned out to be three quarters of a point instead of a point, which was a concern, right? Rates came down because they'd already priced in that point. And so, you know, right now with the 10 year dropping, you know, you're seeing mortgage rates drop with a lot of banks and some banks are, they're holding, they're holding their, the line, but other banks and smaller banks are, are already making those adjustments. And so if you're a bank that holds the portfolio for a longer period and then sells it off in bulk, then in that scenario, you may, you know, get caught. If you're a smaller bank and don't have that ability and they sell it in, in smaller tranches, they're in and out of those loans quicker. So they can be a little bit more agile you know, or they can hold it. The lines of credit that we have over here is, is they've changed a lot and they've changed a lot. It was pretty readily available to sell notes to the secondary market. And then a lot Mm -hmm. of those people just kind of dried up and just stopped buying notes. So there's like, well, you know, so now you had to rely on different things to, to, to open up new lines. But for the most part, it it dramatically changed the hard money, uh, world, which I think you probably as a hard money lender, 20 something years, you probably saw, well, you did see all that New York money come in, right? And start right, funding right. everything. And then I think you did tell me when there's going to be an end of this where it's going to change. And uh, I think we're seeing that change. <clears throat> well, I mean, the interesting about the hard money stuff, right, is that rates really didn't go up for a long time, even when rates were going up. And so what happened with the hard money side that I see from that side is that a lot of these companies that provide lines of credit to other you know, brokers or, or, or lenders, right, that are smaller hard money lenders that rely on that secondary market and more importantly, that line of credit uh, from vendors of that secondary market that, you know, when they were still writing loans at seven and a half and 8%, that when the interest rates shot up a point or three quarters of a point, it caught the market a little bit more by surprise, even though it was expected on the, on the, on the regular market side, what wasn't expected was that, these investors that were then, you know, earning, let's say 6% that were buying into that secondary market and the arbitrage was small, was a point or a point and a half that, you know, why would you invest in a secondary, you know, fix and flip type loan? That's a short run loan when you can just invest in the 10 year yield, right? Buy a bond, it's tax free. And, you know, if you're in a high tax bracket that, you know, lending to the government is safer than lending to, you know, anyone. And so why not take that? Yeah, versus that definitely happened. So then right. the and rates had to go to like 10, 11, 12 to coax right. those people back into the hard money space. That's what's been going on lately. Yeah. So, I mean, they don't have to be that high, but they were had to certainly be up at 8% plus whatever the arbitrage that the lender wanted to make. So now you're seeing rates at eight and a half, nine, nine and a half, ten. 10, you know, and, um, and that's because you need to attract 
attract those dollars. So what happened with the reason the money really tightened in the marketplace, and this is a trickle down effect of the Fed raising the rate, right? Is that, well, if you can invest here for this much and basically with no risk versus investing over here and then you're making the same amount of money, you stop investing over there, you take the no risk angle. And, you know, from, from the standpoint now what happens is that, okay, so these lenders have these large portfolios that they had lent. And if they don't have excess or readily available funds, then they have to stop lending while those loans pay off, right? And so, you know, keep in mind on the fix and flip side, you know, the loans have a four to 12 month life cycle with the average being like 6.8 months or something like that. And so they're going to be tight for the next six months while that tranche of cash that they couldn't sell off, right? That you had zero bidders on after the rate went up. You know, the, the mortgage market was still like, if you look at the activity on it, right? There was one Friday after they raised the rates. I remember how many bidders were there? Zero. Zero bidders for that, for those securities, right? <laughs> that was and that, scary. Right. And everybody's like, oh shit, we can't, re we, they can't recapitalize. So what do they do? They change their rights, they increase them and they're stuck with those. It's not that they lose that money, right? They're just stuck with those until they can resell it. And so, you know, rates are now coming back down. So some of that they're putting back out. As rates come back down, they can put that out and restart to recapitalize. So they're not even really having to wait those six months. So I think you should, you'll see some, um, I think you'll see some uh, uh, easing in that credit market, but uh, you know, that's probably much higher level and much more, um, I don't know your viewers, how many hard money lenders you have, but they've probably seen that the, the same thing, but from a borrowing standpoint, you'll see credit kind of ease up a little bit. Yeah. You know, and, so what do you, what do you say, Robert, about these people on the internet? You know, it's, uh, you're starting to hear more and more and more of these guys on TikTok and the internet saying that uh, uh, it's going to be the greatest uh, buying market in your lifetime from here on in. Um, I was like, no, nah, I think 2000, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 was pretty good. I don't really see that happening. So I'm like, well, I don't know where they're getting this information. I'm, I'm literally puzzled. Where do they see well, the greatest buying market of their lifetime? Disneyland? Disneyland? I mean, you know, I mean, here, here, here's the thing, right? There are some things that could happen that could really drive some things, but you're, they're under a 5% shot, right? And if you're looking at one graph and not the big picture, then, you know, you could, you could potentially, you know, be fooled by that. It's kind of like fool's gold, right? You see this shiny gold rock and you're like, it's gold. It's, it's not gold. It's just a rock. And right. in this case here, if you're not looking at the big picture and seeing everything else, you know, it, it is, it is, it, that, that's not the scenario that I'm seeing. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are inexperienced, but here's the thing, right? I've been in this business now for 32 years. I've been through two major downturns. You know, there was a recession in 2001 that really did nothing, right? There was a recession in 2000 here in what, 20 that really did nothing. There was a recession that for, 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 from a real estate standpoint, there was, you know, there's been uh, the 91 recession, which was the SNL, right? It was a real estate financial crisis. Um, that affected values, but more importantly for California, it wasn't just that, it was a double whammy because you also had all of the base closures and aerospace that left California. Yeah. And so you had a mass exodus of California to other places, which created a very high uh, vacancy rate. And when you have a net negative migration going into any state, 
inventory can't help but rise, right? And so that is a distressed seller situation. And in that case, it was not only just a distressed seller situation, it was a financial situation, very much like what happened in 2008 with the banks. You know, if you look at 2005, 2008, actually 2004, three, all the way to 2008, that was a credit financial bubble that really shouldn't have ever happened, right? There wasn't that much demand. It was manufactured demand by the fact that anyone could qualify for a loan, you know? And so when you sit there and you, cre you create that demand, not through fundamentals of the people qualifying for the loan, but through financial instruments of people who say, yeah, oh, you don't qualify. That's okay. Um, you can earn cash. You can earn, um, you know, I, let's just say you can mow lawns on the weekends and you earn that extra $3,000 a month, extra $36,000. Right. Yeah. That was happening. That was happening across the board. And so when you have those instruments that are creating so much wealth for the people that are selling those instruments, they're going to push that, that vehicle. And that's what created that bubble in, you know, from 2005 to 2008, it wasn't fundamentals. You look at the quality of the borrowers today, it's fundamentals, right? You know, they're well qualified. We don't have all these 3% down or 0% down buyers that we did back then. Most of them are 20%, you know, 10, 20% down buyers right now. And with tax, tax returns. I mean, you got to show right. tax returns. Tax returns. Day, you didn't have to show tax returns. So what the, what the naysayers are saying is like, look, these people are going to lose their jobs. They're going to, you know, have just bought this house. They're going to be upside down. And then it's just that, that it's going to happen all over again. The reason the buyers are afraid today is your major buyer and the component of your buyer today, the, the major, major portion is a millennial. So the millennial, right, is now in their 40s, but just 12 years ago or 14 years ago, saw their parents lose a house, right? And when they're 40, right, and they're now 40, they were in their mid-20s back then or early 20s and possibly still living at home. Sure. And so that, that was a dramatic you know, effect on their, on their livelihood and on their life. So for many people, that's still very fresh in their mind, but that's not where we're at. You know, that was a job loss recession with manufactured, I mean, it's a perfect storm. And the other issue with that was that the next generation that was going to be buying homes was too young, right? They, they were just barely, barely entering that, that, that home buying stage. And, and then they were fearful of doing that because the market was collapsing. So they bought later. And when they bought, they started buying in droves and they very, very quickly became, you know, the biggest sector of the market that bought. And so now the millennials that, I mean, back then you would make fun of us like, wow, they're still living at home. They're, you know, living in the basement gaming now have figured out how to monetize the internet better than our generation has. And they're making money and they're doing, they've got good jobs. And now we're in an economy where, okay, we're entering a recession and, or some have thought like something, right? We've already entered a recession. And now you've got a scenario where you look at the demographics and the demographics are in their peak buying years, right? Which doesn't really end till 2024. Um, you still have relatively low interest rates. You have low inventory and you have, a, you have a shelter problem, right? This was foreseeable and forecastable. You could have seen that we were gonna have a shortage of housing 10 years ago, yet they didn't deregulate, they didn't make it easy until it was too late. 
And so now you have a shortage of shelter. You got millennials that are rooming together that would, would like their own apartment, but can't even compete for an apartment building or an apartment period. Right. Right. Um, we have laws here in California. We can convert your garage to a, um, a, uh, an ADU, which is an accessory dwelling unit for people in other parts of the country. And, and just for the sake of creating more shelter for people to ease the rental market, which has also increased 30 to 40% in rentals over the past year and a half. And so you, you sit there and you look at this stuff and, you know, and then you look at jobs. Okay. We have three point, what is it? 6% unemployment or something like that. We're under 5% uh, and dropping. There's still a lot of jobs out there and you sit there and you look at this whole dynamic and it's like, okay, where do the distressed sellers come from? So that, that's really the key part is if, if we don't see them. Me, but then leads me to my next question. Sure. Okay. So you, Robert Fernando, right? So I, I know I, I heard what your niche was. You're working with homeowners to, to partner with them and uh, fix their house up get it sold, get top of the market. But what about inventory going forward? Maybe not in your specific view, but for other investors that are looking to, you know, keep the products coming through, keep the deals going. Uh, what do you see for that in regards to that? Um, so far as new deals coming forward in the next, how long? Six months. Six months. Uh, so six months, I'm taking a slightly more uh, uh, conservative approach. And the reason is that, you know, we've had no seasonality for the last three years. And, you know, I think this is the first year that we're going to see some seasonality. What do you mean by seasonality? So, you know, normally in, uh, in the fall and winter months, inventory tends to drop, but so does the buyer demand, right? Because it, yeah. most people want to move during summer, kids are in, out of school, et cetera. Um, you know, most people think that the market just slows and it's just actually, there's, it's a combination of things. You, it does slow, but part of the reason is that you have, you know, basically low, less people wanting to sell their home. And, and so that slows down the volume, but you also have less buyers, right? So it's rightfully that, you know, there's not as many sellers looking to sell. And so it really makes sense. But I used to, when I was younger and just first started, I always thought that the market really just increased in inventory and increased in, 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 um, in the, in the amount of, uh, right. 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 And, and that's why it was, and that's not actually the reason it, it, it happens is if you look at the actual data. And so, you know, one of the biggest things that I, I see if, if interest rates continue to drop, right. With the trend line and inflation, starts like if you get a, a resolution to Ukraine, that's going to solve a lot of the inflation issues because I don't think people realize how much inflation is tied to oil, which is really used in production for almost everything, you know, um, from, you know, plastic tables to straws to, to, you know, deliveries to everything. And so it, it is a really a key part and it's hard to have inflation, you know, back when before oil really spiked, People were like, hey, we've got so much inflation. Inflation's going crazy and all this stuff. And my, my argument was, I'm like, well, this isn't inflation. This is supply chain issues. You know, there's a difference between inflation. Yeah, things are going up, but it's temporary. And the reason that was my argument was that oil was under $88 a barrel. And it's very hard to have any real inflation when oil's under $88 a barrel because your cost to manufacture so many things is low. Right. And so the other reasons for things to go up is demand, which is what, where we were at, right? There was a supply chain issue. 
demand was still high. You had pent up demand and people were seeking out, you know, durable goods and, and everything else. Right. And so if you look at the largest spike that's happened out there, you know, um, you know, people point to housing and it's not really housing. It's really more durable goods. And so there's now an oversupply of things in the durable goods sector. And I think that's where the recession is going to probably hit the hardest this time. So from a buying perspective, if I'm looking at things, I'm taking a more conservative approach. I'm ignoring April, May, you know, and June comps. And I'm really paying very, very close attention to properties that are currently pending and actives. Yeah, I like and that. yeah, and our team is really out there seeking out that in, that information. We're calling the agents. We're trying to you know ascertain what it's in escrow for. You know, if it's a cash buyer, not cash buyer. Uh, how many people went through that open house, how many offers they had, and trying to figure out what the active buyer pool is for whatever particular area let, that we're let at. Me, let me just stop you real quick. A lot of the people that are listening that don't quite understand why that is, is because, you know, the, the, the Robert, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the comps were going up for the last X amount of months, right? Up, 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 up. And then right. we kind of hit this little interest rate um, um, uh, niche, whatever. And then uh, in April, May, and June, uh, the prices kind of flattened or, or, or decreased a little bit for whatever reason. And so now what he's doing is he's looking at, um, he's not really looking at comps for the last six months. He has to discount those three. So he's actually looking at more of a, um, a sniper approach by looking at the pendings, right? Like, because pendings today tell you what the market's doing today, not what it did in April. So he's looking at companies, he's looking at these pendings way closer than he used to and um, calling the agent to make sure Hey, what did try to, like you said, try to find out what it went in escrow for, um, as much information as you can. So now he has an actual comp today, which, you know, when you're usually comping, you, eh, I mean, I mean, I went with closed, right? And, and not so much pending or under contract. I just went with closed, some active. But now it's like that pending that he's talking about is that's showing you today, right? Uh, August 2nd, what the market's doing today. And, and is that correct? Is that your, your view, Robert? Uh, yeah, so so mostly correct. I, the uh, you said the uh, yeah, well you said the market kind of flattened in uh, April, May, and June. It didn't flatten. That was the probably peak of the frenzy, and so those comps were continually to outpace each other, right, and that was right. where a lot of the increase was. I got you. And so I, I, yeah, so outside of that, everything else uh, is is correct in your statement. And so I would say that if you're looking at um, comparables today, or you're trying to assess value, you're really forecasting. And so the problem for, so a lot of people, they look at and they hear the projections and, okay, they've revised projections instead of being, you know, it was going to be somewhere between eight and let's say 16% uh, price appreciation for 2020. They've now revised that number to be, let's say 6% to, you know, 8% or, you know, four to 6% or whatever the revision is, you know, see, that's great. If you're year over year selling and you bought a year ago, and then are going to sell a year later, you, then you, you had that appreciation. What happens in real life, is, if you're flipping, is that you're trading within that time frame. And so if you bought, and just like every year, you know, we talked about the seasonality of the marketplace. So in, in a normal year, without all of this going on in the world, you know, most of your appreciation really happens between, you know, February and July. And then you give back some in August, September, October, November, you know, and then you're flat 
and then you have appreciation and that's the cycle right and it's the same with the cycle of inventory it goes up it goes down and pricing does the same thing within that year so if you're looking at year over year numbers um you know they mean something for long-term investors they mean nothing for flippers really right it, the flipper just needs to gauge when that's happening because you're going to get in and out during that cycle so when the homes that we bought in November and then sold in February and there was a lot of appreciation. Great. The homes we bought in December and sold in April, those really killed it because that was all the appreciation. Now, so let's say we had a 15% of appreciation during that time. And now they're revising their numbers down to 6%. That means we're losing 9% in value somewhere throughout that year. So if you're flipping and your margin is eight to 10%, you're going to make no money on that deal. Yeah, right. Because if you if you didn't time it right, just like you made that extra, you know, two hundred thousand on on other properties, because the market took off, and so that's the real life for flipping. So it's important right now to have people that are experienced that understand that on your team that can guide you or have a mentor or have something that can say, hey, you know what, you're looking at this wrong, and not necessarily buying into the the hype about, you know, there's a lot of people that will sell you. You know, they, they want to sell you a seminar. They want to do whatever, you know, they want to, they want you to click on their ad where it says, Hey, interest rates, and this is slowed. And it, it's a shocking thing. I can't tell you how many articles that I've read where the, the title has nothing to do with the article. Right. But the title is there and it's so shocking that you have to click on it and then read through it. And it's like, well, what does this have to do with the title? It has nothing to do. It has to do with them selling clicks so they can yeah. sell advertising so they can make money. Right. And, you know, and so I think that that's a lot of what's going on. And unfortunately, you know, the stupidity of some real estate agents, and I'm going to pick on them for a second here, is when the interest rates went up, they're so desperate to try to get listings that the panic was create the panic so you can get listings. And instead, what they did is they created the panic and they lost the buyers. They didn't right. get more listings. Right. right. right? And now interest rates have gone down. And are they out there saying, hey, you guys, this is your opportunity. We've got inventory. Interest rates have come back down by now. No, they're not. They're sitting there still trying to work on the fears of the marketplace to get the listing because they want to win the trip to, you know, Cabo San Lucas from their office for getting the listing and selling it. You know, it's, it's just, it's sheer stupidity. When you, if you look at the whole, the, the whole market as a whole, you know, the fundamentals are good. They're strong. They're still there, but buyers are really, really gun shy, you know, and you know, uh, a lot of that is not necessarily warranted. No, don't get me wrong. Some of it's warranted, but not to the level where it just stopped. We have two months worth of inventory. We should still be seeing price appreciation and so forth. Uh, you know, I, for one, am, am kind of happy that that's slowed because that's unsustainable. But you're definitely seeing fears in the marketplace that are unwarranted. Here, I'll, I'll give you just a quick example. I have a client who wants to buy a house. He's a friend, he's a referral. I, I don't really work with buyers. But in this case, you know, I was asked for a favor to just help someone out. So I said, all right. So the guy's like, you know, he's buying a two and a half million dollar house. He's a little concerned about the marketplace. And here was my statement to him. I said, well, what are you worried about? He's like, well, I'm worried about the market like crashing and this being a bad investment. I'm like, it's not an investment. You're buying your house. You're buying right. shelter and stability and your ability to afford that monthly payment. And in his case, he's buying a two and a half million dollars house and he's got almost five million dollars in the bank. And he's in an industry that's not really recession driven, you know, one way or the other. And, and I said, you know, if for you, I, what are you really worried about? You're looking for stability here in the house. The housing tenure in LA has increased 
it's it's the highest in the country right now. It's now up to 18 years. So that means that the average person that buys a home lives in their house for 18 years. Let me tell you what someone who sells their house today that bought it 18 years ago says, right? That how many of them here, like, do you hear saying, God, I overpaid for this house? Right. Zero of them, zero <laughs> of them. No one, no one's ever said that, that's owned it for 18 years and said, wow, I wish I wouldn't have bought this house, right? And we had a and huge so, crash and we had a huge crash in between that. We had two huge crashes in between right, that, right, right. right? And so, you know, you sit there and you look at this and, you know, and, and uh, or two huge recessions, I should say, you know, one was very short, which was the COVID one, which was, you know, a, a situational one. And the other was the great recession that we had where market, the value of the homes really crashed. And, but, you know, if you sit there and you look at this from a realistic standpoint, if that same person were renting, they would be spending more than what they were on their mortgage. And even if the market were flat, right, is the argument for a lot of people who say, well, when you adjust it for inflation, it's flat, there's not real like price growth. Okay, all right, let's say that's the case. There is dollar price growth and you do get those dollars. And then the other side is that, you know, you had the stability of that same monthly payment and you're saving the part that's going to principal. So even if we were in a flat market, you still got all that back. You had no rent increases if you were the homeowner, right? And and because your payments stayed the same. So you created that stability and were able to create more wealth and do more things. And so by creating that nested equity, it, it just became a, a win. And so, you know, you know listen, one of my kids came into the kitchen the other day. He's like, hey, I don't know. I don't know how he stumbled upon some kind of internet thing. But he said, hey, dad, did we... Um, you know, there's, did we lose equity this last couple of months? Which I don't even know he knew the word equity, to be quite frank. And I was like, no. He's like, well, why are we shielded? I go, because we're not selling. We're, you know what I mean? If you're not selling, like, how could I, the equity doesn't mean anything to me anyway, because I'm not going right. to sell the house. I bought the house because I wanted to keep the house. And that's it. And uh, so to your point, yeah, I, mean, I didn't lose anything because I'm not going to sell. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of home buyers make, right? Is they sit there, they look at this and they look at the purchase of their home as an investment because realtors are out there also marketing that this is your biggest investment, you know, and both statements are true, by the way, but unless that's explained more to the home buyer, they think about it like an investment and really what they should think about it like is I'm buying my security. Right, I'm buying. I'm buying a flat basis unless you're getting to an adjustable rate mortgage. If you're buying a fixed mortgage and a fixed rate mortgage for 30 years, you're buying the stability of the pro of your shelter, right? And at the same time, you'll build equity because you'll get that principal back, and not to mention you get to write off and you know other things for it. So I think there's the the benefits outweigh the risk from a homeownership standpoint. But if you're one of the people that's saying, okay, well, I may sell this in two years. Okay, then you got a little bit more of concern, but just sure. keep in mind that the average in LA is 18 years, you know, and it's, it's kind of, you know, I think a lot of people think it's, it's, it's like a storage unit, right? People get these storage units to save stuff that they're never going to really use again in, think, yeah. in thinking that they're only going to have it for three months or five months. Right. And homeownership is a little bit like that where they, they the insecurity of the job or the insecurity of, of the recession or the, like the consumer confidence right now that they might lose their job you lose your job today, there's, you know, there's 8 million other jobs waiting for you. So it's different than like 2008, where it was a jobs loss recession. So, you know, it, it's a very, very different <laughs> fundamental, you know. My other, my other teenager said, there's no, well, dad, I, I go, when are you going to get a job? He's like, well, I mean, I don't, I, there's no jobs. I'm like, listen, 
Hold on. <laughs> Listen, take that down the street, bro. You can get a job within literally walking distance. Five right. jobs if you try. He's like, well, yeah. Five, five jobs. Job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. F- five jobs if you didn't try, right? Didn't try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my son goes through the drive through at like Chick Fil A, and they just automatically give him an application now. Yeah, you know, that's same thing, awesome. <laughs> same thing with like like In and Out. They're just like, hey, do you want to work? They just give you the piece of paper, and and they and they throw that out there, right? Twenty, what is it? I mean, here, like I think In and Out paying like twenty or twenty two dollars an hour. Crazy, right? You know, and. And he's like, you know, and I'm sure for a lot of people, that's like very tempting, you know? And so, yeah, but you, but you sit there and you look at that and, and while, listen, that's not the highest paying job and you certainly can't support a family on, you know, $42,000 or $44,000 a year if you're working full time, you know, but you also won't be starving and it's, it's, you know. Yeah, and, yeah no, a hundred percent agree. Take what you could get. But I mean, especially for a, like, you know, like you said, like young guys, right. You know, the young guys are still living at the house. And um, that's really good money. That's really good money. So let me get back to something, Robert. So you're so this so the guys that are still fixing the flipping, looking for inventory, you have a little niche that works really, really well for them. Are we still talking about you're still picking them up from like let's say the NMLS, right? Uh, you're picking them up from wholesalers. Um, what would you point those people in what direction? Same same thing. Uh, NMLS well, and wholesalers. It, it, uh, well, MLS, not NMLS is for loans, right? That's just a lending license. Me, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the MLS is a good source uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, not just for inventory. You know, a lot of the wholesalers that you're competing with, you know, uh, I've stopped competing with a lot of the wholesalers uh, that are out there. Once they have multiple offers on a fixer, I just let it bounce around. Or if it comes back to me through the wholesaler, then, and it still makes sense that I'll buy it. But I've stopped trying to like really push those. Uh, I go for more off market properties. You know, if you're spending marketing dollars, you know, really, unless you're spending, I mean, if, you, if you're new and you're starting out, I'm going to tell you, here's, here's a good piece of advice. That's really tough for, for a lot of people is that you really, unless you're spending thousands of dollars a month, your marketing is not really going to produce much, right? Because the percentage of conversion from, uh, from the leads that come in from just small dollars is very, very low to begin with. And if you're only spending even a thousand dollars a month on marketing and you're not doing really uh, um, direct to consumer marketing, cold calling, door knocking, things along those lines, and you're relying on mailers or internet ads for a thousand, you're not really going to get calls. You know, if you're spending, you know, 10, 15,000 a month, you'll probably get one to two deals a month. You know, the guys that are spending and, and your cost for each deal is probably going to be somewhere in that, you know, $7,500 per transaction. But the key part for it is really it's the follow up with those leads that come in because very few of them really convert immediately, right? The majority of them you have to drip for the next three to six months because they're, they're, they're just making an initial call to get an idea as to what it's going to sell. And most of the people that do that $1,000 marketing they get the lead, it doesn't convert, and then they move on. And they don't follow up with those leads that did come in for an extended period of time. And we're tr- really, that's the gold, right? You're farming your own leads. Of someone who called that is going to sell in the future, 
and you have to maintain that connection over and over and over again. Yesterday. You're right, 100% right. I just picked up right. yesterday, started this conversation with this person just chatting, you know, what's up, you know, maybe a month and a half ago. And yesterday was a, hey, you know, I got a five to six unit here in uh, Texas called, it was last night. And then this morning we talked about it and it's a deal from, you're right, two months ago, just because we kept the communication live. Right, right. And that, and that I think is really the key. And so, you know, but if you're, if you're spending, I'll say 80 to hundred thousand a month, then your cost goes down to probably, you know, somewhere between four and 5,000, you know, a conversion, you know, but if you're spending that much money, your cost also is not just from the, uh, the marketing. It's also from the staff that you need to manage those leads to have the closers that go out for the appointments to have, you know, a, to have a system in place. And so I know people that spend, you know, between a hundred and 300 a month, which is a lot of money. And grand? yeah. And, and uh, really? yeah, one, one of them has stopped uh, until October. They want to see what happens in October. October is a key month, by the way. And the reason October is a key month, it's a, it's the first month that really shows the seasonality of, you know, the slowdown in listings. And so if we have a slowdown in listings and you're having a slowdown in the economy leading into a recession, you know, they typically don't raise rates in a recession, right? That's when rates contract because you want to get the economy going again. This is a little different here. So this is a unique time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because what's happening is you have the fundamentals of, you know, a mid-stage cycle and yet you're in the late cycle and entering a recession and yet there's a, there's jobs available. There's, you know, um, relatively still from a, you know, res, from a residential real estate standpoint, there's still low inventory. There are still buyers, although they're weary a little bit about buying. And, you know, if, if you're on the internet and you're making this claim about, you know, interest rates going up to 8%, if you believe interest rates are going to continue to rise and you believe that the economy is doing very good and very strong and can sustain higher interest rates. But if we're in, but if you're also crying that, Hey, we're entering a recession and interest rates are going to continue to rise because, you know, the economy is doing well, that's a conflict in your statement, right? It doesn't make sense to make that statement. And therefore, if you're listening to them, you should probably discount a lot of what they're saying, but you know, it, it, it is true in partial that you can have rates still rise because we have low inventory, uh, you know, we have low unemployment. And where is this recession going to affect the marketplace the most? And it's in my eyes, the one that has the biggest deviation from the trend line is durable goods. Real estate is not durable goods. So I don't think that we're going to have that big of a correction here outside of maybe the the crazy frenzy that we had in, between you know december and and uh, june of this past year and hence hence why i'm looking at pending and active so I, I i don't think that means you stop buying and some people have you know and but i think that's also leads to their operations and how their operations are i mean a lot of people they partner with me they want to do this because we have a process that works you know i used to be a licensed contractor and you know, we, we have a process from a construction standpoint that works. And a lot of people, you know, they, they find a good deal and then they mess it up to do the construction phase because they mismanage the construction. 
Yeah, you know, which, is, is which is what brings me to my next part, which was, so investors that want to fix and flip, uh, realtors that want to fix and flip, homeowners that are looking to have somebody come in and, um, and, and partner with them to sell their property. So you, you'll partner with wholesalers, you'll partner with realtors, or you'll partner with homeowners, right? That's, that's right. you'll partner with anybody. And then tell, just give them a real quick plug on, on how that works. How does that benefit them? Yeah, so, so basically what I'm going to do is this, is I'm going to uh, use our, um, our network. You know, and if you have a contractor that you want to use, I don't have a problem with that. We make $0 from the construction. You know, we're in the, uh, in the business with you. And essentially what happens is this, is that if we help you create extra equity, we'd like to participate in that equity uh, if we're putting up the money to get you to that point. Uh, you know, the house is worth whatever the house is worth from the point you bring it to us. But if we can help add value, then, you know, we'd like to participate in that value that we add. Alternatively, you know, if you don't want us to put out the money, you have your own money and you want to make more money, we'll just do it for, you know, like a percentage of whatever we spend and, and as a as a uh, as a designer. I mean, we're happy to use your contractors. If you have contractors, we're not like I said, we, we don't profit from that side of it. And so everything from our standpoint is very, very transparent. Cancel checks, receipts, material. I mean, down to the penny, it's accounted for. Nice. And what what about wholesalers? What about like I pick up a deal and I want to wholesale it, and yeah. I don't. I got too much stuff going on in the business. So I say, hey, you know what, Robert? Look, I got this deal. I want to partner with you. You guys kind of handle the whole thing. Let's 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 partner. You you do something like that too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. I mean, their their fee is going to stay in the deal, right? I mean, if they've got a super home run. I don't mind there being, you know, uh, a small cash out or something like that. But for the most part, you know, what, what I want to make sure is that our, our interests are aligned. Right. And so if, you know, like it, let's say a realtor brings a deal and they want a partner, you know, their, their, their buyer's commission is basically part of the deal. It stays in the deal because otherwise what happens is that if someone's profiting all the way through, right, then your interests aren't aligned and it's too easy for, you know, them to bring you a bunch of junky deals, right? And then that wastes our time. And so I like for our interests to all be aligned if I'm putting up the cash uh, and then we're going to split profits, right? That and so like a, that's what an actual flipper is. We, we, there's this capital, we put the money down, we get a hard money loan, we go through the whole thing, we don't get any money unless we sell it. So yeah, right. either should you. <laughs> there, there's a saying that you'll hear. I mean, I, if, you, if you're, you know, part of a group or something with me, um, you'll see, you know, I say this a lot, right? Everybody's your enemy. You know, when you're the investor, I thought I made the, that up. The, the escrow, you may, yeah, no, you didn't. I thought I made that up, Michelle. Do you yeah. hear said everybody's your enemy? That's 100% true, go yeah. ahead. It, it, listen, the title company's gonna make their money, the escrow, the real estate agents, the contractor, you know, if there's something left at the end, it, it's yours. But if there's not, it's also yours, right? Right, right. If it's a loss, it's yours. And so, you know, from that standpoint, you just need to, you know, it's great to build a team, but you can't forget that, that at the end of the day, their the contractor's responsibility is to make money from the con construction. And I've seen people try to use contractors we've worked with because they're great contractors. And then they use them as like, man, that guy like ripped me off or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, you've mismanaged them, right? Sure. I mean, his job is to make money off of construction, <laughs> right? And and he did that because you allowed that to happen. Sure did. And, and by the way, 
I allow it to happen as well because I want them to make money so they keep working with me. But, yeah, but I don't want them get to get ahead of you. That's what most investors do. They make a mistake of letting that contractor get ahead of them. And then, right. Yeah. Right. You know, and so that's the key part about partnering with me is you'll learn the systems and best practices and so forth. And I'm, I'm a little bit uh, strict on them because it's part of the process. And so I'd rather not get started with a project for two or three weeks to make sure we have the right scope of work, the right bid set, the right people we're working with so that it runs smoothly because, you know, that extra week or two that you use is going to catch up to you anyhow, time-wise and questions and so forth that come through, you know, our, ours run pretty smoothly because we answer all the questions up front. And yeah, so it makes so it- many, <coughs> so many things to learn, especially if you're a realtor, <clears throat> if you're geared to list properties, you come across a great deal, think I'm going to flip it. There's, you know, there's a lot of little potholes that you got to learn through, you know, tears, I guess. To, to avoid and uh, Robert's uh, stepped in a lot of them along the last 20 years. You, 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 you know, I've stepped on my shares and you get yes, the, you the benefit and of learn. I mean, yeah, and more importantly, I mean, I, I've seen, I mean, thousands and thousands of transactions. And so, you know, a lot of these, you, even, even from a lender standpoint, right? We get to see people's mistakes and you learn from it, you know, because you got that experience, the benefit of that experience without necessarily all of the risk. And so that's really, really helped me. You know, I do consulting for some hard money companies and uh, construction companies uh, that are entering this space. You know, I think that there's a, a uh, there, there's a space for a lot of people, but, you know, from a construction company standpoint, it, it's rehabs are very different than new construction. You know, a lot of people think new construction is much more difficult and harder. And yes, there's more coordination within that, but, you know, it's a very detailed out explanation of exactly what to do within that blueprint. Whereas with a rehab, you, you don't have that. And so if you don't know how to create that blueprint for your contractor, you're gonna be answering a lot of questions throughout that process. And it can become very frustrating. And if your time is being taken up there, then it's gonna be, it's gonna interrupt your deal flow and your ability to process new transactions. And so that's why a lot of rehabbers, they get caught in this, this hey, they're doing you know, 10, 15, 20 a year but to get to like 60 or hundred a year, if you don't have the right processes in place, it's very difficult to do that. And so that's kind of one of the, uh, the challenges, right? And so people like to you know, sometimes yeah. bring me into a deal so I can help them uh, through that process. And with that, let me say this. So uh, if there's a wholesaler, a realtor or a homeowner that's looking to add value and team up with you, how do they get a hold of you? So I just put it on my chat so you can share it on your podcast. Uh, I put my Instagram, Facebook, email, and uh, phone number. If they call, uh, they can text is better uh, for texting that number. In fact, I should add that that's a text number. But yeah, for the most part, uh, I'm very accessible. I'm easy to get a hold of. And if they you know like to join a group, we have a monthly subscription. They can do that through. Um, we go through... Uh, you know, we have a few different groups that are either for the more experienced, uh, the beginner, you know, the wholesale, the realtor, you know, because they all have different challenges and, and different uh, approaches. Good, good, good. So we're going to post that up for you. And uh, yep. let's say thank you to our, our good friend and uh, uh, Robert Fergoza with uh, a lot of experience. And thank you so much, Robert, for being a part of the uh, Flip Gorilla podcast. And we always love having you on. Thanks, bud. Great talking to you. You too. Bye. Bye.